In an emergency conclave held in the ruined castle of duplicity, set high on the fog-shrouded crags of Mount Corruption, a coven of American journalists gathered in their ceremonial black robes last night to discuss how to disparage Donald Trump's progress toward peace in the Middle East. As lightning repeatedly turned the black clouds a sickly gray as a cinematic symbol of ultimate evil, the chairman of the dark gathering, Lord High Master of All Fraudulence, George Stephanopoulos, called the meeting to order by pounding his gavel, made from the skull of an inconvenient child by a Democrat politician's mistress, on a pentagram drawn in the blood of Jeffrey Epstein. Stephanopoulos suggested that Trump's Middle East peace deal might be downplayed if the media simply did not ask White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany even a single question that might distract the public from the latest meaningless bombshell from Bob Woodward, who attended the meeting in the shape of a bat hanging upside down from a stalactite. Dean Bacay of the New York Times, a former newspaper, also attended in his true form, slithering across the floor to suggest that journalists might explain to their audience that Middle East peace is a grave impediment to the oppressed Palestinians yearning to wipe every Jew off the face of the earth. The suggestion was met with such loud cackling laughter that NBC's Chuck Todd burst into flame before regaining his shape as a cloven-tailed demon no bigger than a man's fist. CNN's Dana Bash, who arrived in a puff of purple smoke dressed in black leather and attended by a snarling Brian Stelter and Jim Acosta writhing in chains, suggested that perhaps they could convince the public that peace in the Middle East would lead to war. Before the gathering could draft a final plan, however, the sun rose, breaking through the black shroud of darkness and forcing the entire conclave back under their worm-ridden rocks, which many of the journalists complained was a violation of the First Amendment. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hurrah. All right, we are back laughing our way through the fall of the Republic. And I'm just, you may be wondering why I'm back in studio today. It's because I heard Walsh was in here and I just I had to chase him out and disinfect the place and burn some of the furniture. So I just had to take care of that. But if you have not subscribed yet to the Andrew Clavin YouTube channel, remember as of September 28th, my YouTube show will be moved there off the Daily Wire. It's not because the Daily Wire and I are parting ways. It's simply because they're ashamed to be associated with me as, as who wouldn't be. So go over and subscribe. It helps. You've already got over 100,000 subscribers. We're looking to get 30 million. Uh, and so you want to be the next one. The first, the first, when we get to 20 million, you get a balloon. Uh, and that's important. And if you leave a comment and it's sufficiently moronic, uh, we will read it on the show just to raise the level of the conversation here. We have one today, speaking of moronic, from Phil. Philip Leroux, who say, says, I often think of all the airtime you spend telling people how to spell your name. Wouldn't it be easier just to change the spelling of your name, perhaps to something like Smith? Uh, <laughs> actually, you know, if I'd thought of it, I would have done it, but I just it just never came up before. The Babylon Bee, where you will find the second funniest satire available online, had a headline the other day about California. It said, state that just reduced penalties for pedophiles, not sure why God keeps lighting them on fire. The reference, to explain away the joke, the reference was to a new California law, which basically erases a legal distinction between men who sleep with underage girls and men who sleep with underage boys. This is an immoral thing to do. So the bee is joking that God has set the state's forests on fire as a punishment. Now, 
Generally, I'm not someone who attributes disasters to God's wrath. Bad things do happen to good people. That just doesn't happen to be the case in California where we're getting what we deserve. But during a year like 2020, with the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter and Antifa riots, the economic downturn, the exposure of the left to supporting every evil from child abuse to cop killing, it's tempting to wonder if God has just had enough of a world that is rapidly falling away from the true faith, which, spoiler alert, is Christianity. There's biblical precedence for this. God punished an evil world with a universal flood. You remember the story of Noah. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for inventing sodomy, and he hit the Jews with the Babylonian, Babylonian captivity when they started hanging out with Baal. Nowadays, however, preachers who attribute our troubles to unbelief are frowned upon, although possibly not by God. My own suspicion that the world is really so infected and infested with sin in every fiber of its being that disaster is simply part of the system. But that doesn't mean there's no punishment for society drifting away from God. In fact, drifting away from God is the punishment. Without God, all this suffering is meaningless. Without God, your fellow man becomes the enemy. And without God, your own heart comes to seem, even to yourself, it comes to seem irredeemably foul. Positive human achievements like fossil fuel and capitalism take on the shape of demons because they're the projected image of yourself. When you hate yourself, the good things that human beings do seem bad to you. It would be a good idea for the left to stop supporting child abuse and cop killing, but that won't stop the California wildfires. What it might do is make our blue states look just a little bit less like hell. So let's talk about stamps.com because you do not want to go to the post office these days. Everything you want should be in your computer, and that's what stamps.com is. Stamps.com brings all the services of the United States post office into your computer, and stamps.com also offers UPS services with discounts up to 62% and no residential surcharges. With Stamps.com, you can use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Clavin. That's S-M-I-T-H. That's Stamps.com. <laughs> Enter Clavin. Some of you may have caught that. Some of you have said, wait a minute, that's Smith. That's not Clavin. That's right. You're absolutely right. If you're smart enough to get Stamps.com, you should be smart enough to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V. A-N. So I'm going to play you one of the strangest clips I've ever seen, and I have seen a lot of strange clips. This is a long clip, but I want to play the whole thing because it is just so amazing, and it's what we're going to be talking about a lot today. This is Newt Gingrich on Harris Faulkner's show, and you will hear the lady's voice that you hear at the end is uh, Marie Harf, who is a liberal commentator. Newt Gingrich explaining why so many criminals are being released to commit crimes again as crime goes up. The murder rate is going up in Democratic cities across the country. Here is Newt explaining why, part of why that's happening. The number one problem in almost all these cities is George Soros elected left wing, anti-police, pro-criminal district attorneys who refuse to pe keep people locked up. Uh, just yesterday, they put somebody back on the street who's wanted for two different murders in New York City. Uh, you cannot solve this problem. And both Harris and Biden have talked very proudly about what they call progressive district attorneys. Progressive district attorneys are anti-police, pro-criminal, and overwhelmingly elected with George Soros' money 
and they're a major cause of the violence we're seeing because they keep putting the violent criminals back on the street. I'm not sure we need to bring George Soros into this. I was going to say you get the last word, Speaker. He he paid for it. I mean, why can't we discuss the fact that millions of dollars he spent? I I agree with Melissa. George Soros doesn't need to be a part of this conversation. Okay. So it's verboten. All right. So it's verboten to mention that George Soros has, in fact, been funding these DAs, these lax DAs who look for opportunities to charge police with acts of malfeasance, but look also for opportunities to release criminals back into this into the society and also to take away systems like bail, which keep them in prison where they belong. We can't mention George Soros. And by the way, if you couldn't see it, Marie Harf, the prissy look of self-righteousness on her face when she says, oh, we're not going to mention George Soros, uh, was quite something to behold. Why aren't we going to mention George Soros? Because George Soros is an evildoer who uses his money to do evil. He has been doing evil for a long time. He believes America is the problem with the world. He is also in the most a random sense of the word, a Jew. I mean, he's not a religious Jew. He's anything but a religious Jew. And he is a collection. It is absolutely true. He is a collection of anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic cliches. He's a collection of anti-Semitic cliches. He's stateless. He believes in being stateless, what they call cosmopolitan. He has no loyalty to any state. He uses money to operate behind the scenes. He's very wealthy, and he uses that money to influence politics. He is, in fact, a collection of anti-Semitic jokes. I mean, if you made, if you know, if you got one of those Hitlerian pamphlets and it described what Jews were doing, it would be what George Soros is doing. Well, you know, there's a reason for this, and we're going to talk about it, but the fact is, when you allow racism to uh, come into your thoughts at all, you start to do crazy stuff like silence Newt Gingrich telling the simple truth. And I will explain to you why it is, in fact, the simple truth. George Soros is not evil because he's Jewish, but he is a Jew who does very bad things and does them in a way that plays into these stereotypes. Stereotypes do not come out of nowhere. Stereotypes are people's observations. And as I always say about bigots, it's not It's not that bigots are wrong about the people they hate. It's that they're wrong about themselves. We all suck. That's the point. It's not that Jews are worse than anybody else. It's that everybody's terrible. And if you pick a group and if you look at them in terms of their culture, it's really not race, it's culture. If you look at them in terms of their culture, they are going to exhibit traits that are in keeping with that culture and can be turned into stereotypes. George Soros is a case in point. A black mugger is a case in point. A wasp who's an elitist bigot is a case in point. These things all exist. They're all real. You can't ignore them because and say, oh, because you're picking on this guy. It's anti-Semitic. I once did a, uh, a roast for Ben Shapiro and it was at a Jewish gathering. And my one of my jokes was I said, you know, there's a horrible and it really is a horrible uh, and anti-Semitic libel. It's called the blood libel. The idea that Jews kill Christian children to make their matzah. And I said, you know, it's a terrible thing to accuse Jews of this just because it's something Shapiro happens to enjoy. And the, the joke, of course, is that individuals do bad things and they are not exactly exempt from those things because of their race. So Hot Air did an excellent article today, and it quotes 
It, it basically backs up what Newt Gingrich says. Here's from the New York Times. A district attorney race on the banks of Lake Ontario has become an unlikely big money referendum on traditional law and order prosecutors, much like similar battles in Boston, Philadelphia, and Queens, New York. The race in Monroe County pits a Republican incumbent, Sandra Dorley, against an insurgent challenger, Shawnee Curry-Mitchell, a progressive newcomer who has drawn the attention and backing from the billionaire, George Soros. Since early October, Mr. Soros has spent more than $800,000 on ads in this little race. Here's the Philadelphia Inquirer. Also last year, George Soros is back in Pennsylvania politics with a new $1 million investment and 100000 of that is being spent in support of another Democrat seeking to become a district attorney. Soros also spent money on DA races in Virginia. Going back to 2016, Politico published a story about Soros' desire to reform the criminal justice system by spending money to elect progressive prosecutors. Uh, this is from Politico. While America's political kingmakers inject their millions into high-profile presidential and congressional contests, Democratic megadonor George Soros has directed his wealth into an under-the-radar 2016 campaign to advance one of the progressive movement's core goals, reshaping the American justice system. In St. Louis, Soros has don donated money on and on and on. Now, again, as I say, the racists are, racists are not wrong about the people they hate. We're all hateful. They're wrong about themselves. They're hateful, too. So if you're pointing at somebody, this is why you judge not, right, lest you be judged. If you're pointing at somebody else, you're not paying attention to the things that you can change. So what we are seeing now, and the reason I bring this up, it's not just to go after George Soros. I'm always happy to go after George Soros. It's not just because of that. It is because murder is on the rise. Here's from Paul Cassell in the Wall Street Journal. He's a college professor in Utah. Cities across the country suffered dramatic increases in homicides this summer. And, and this is important because this happened back in the 80s and 90s. And I was there the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I lived in New York at the time. It was deadly dangerous to be in New York. Murders were on the rise. And people did something. And there was a reason it happened. And there was a reason it went away. But let's just look for a minute at what's happening now. Cities across the country suffered dramatic increases in homicides this summer. The spikes were remarkable suddenly appearing and widespread, although often concentrated in disadvantaged neighborhoods. This year is on track to be the deadliest year for gun-related homicides since at least 1999. Now that, for people who follow crime, that is a magic number. It is in the 90s when this finally was turned around. So if we're going back to 1999, we are going very much in the wrong direction. The, the homicide, reading again from Cassell, the homicide spikes began in late May. Before May 28th, Chicago had almost the same number of homicides as in 2019. Then on May 31st, 18 people were murdered in Chicago, the city's most violent day in six decades. Violence continued through the summer. July was Chicago's most violent month in 28 years. As of September 1st, murder is up 52% for the year, according to Chicago Police Department data. Now, last weekend it was, I think there were 56 shootings in Chicago and 13 fatalities. Here is the police superintendent. I think his, what's his name? David Brown, is it? Um, I think that's his name. Yeah, David Brown, explaining why this is going on. One of the shootings this weekend was someone we had arrested for possessing an illegal gun. So this person is in that number, and they're on electronic monitoring, and they shoot. They're involved in a shooting where six people are shot. And this person has seven felonies, and yet they're out on the streets in our neighborhoods on electronic monitoring. 
what are we doing? I mean, it's beyond frustrating. It's, it makes your blood boil if you're one of those victims to a person that's out of jail on electronic monitoring that had previously seven felonies and was arrested by Chicago police officers and his gun was recovered for possessing an illegal gun because he's a felon in possession of a gun and yet he's out of jail. Can, is there anyone who can look at this American law officer and when he says this is beyond frustrating, makes your blood boil and not feel what he's talking about? Can you not feel what it is to be a police officer whose job is to keep the streets safe, whose job is to keep the people safe, who look out and say, this is my city. I am here to keep it safe, who take the risks that they do, who pay. You know, and I've talked about this before. The worst thing we ask of the police, the thing that we ask of the police that is the most painful is not to risk their lives, though they do risk their lives. It is to see reality as it is without surcease without any rest. They see reality in a way I don't, in a way you don't. They look at the hu- at human nature at its lowest possible level. I've known a lot of cops. It gets to them over time. It wears away at their faith. It wears away at their faith in humanity. It's a very difficult thing to do. And to face all that and to take all that on for society, for the sake of society, and have some clown of a Soros-backed DA let this guy back out to kill again has got to drive you crazy. And there is something else driving the police crazy. Chicago, I'm going back to this Paul Cassell, this uh, Cassell article in the Wall Street Journal. Chicago shooting spike reflects what is happening in main, many major cities across the country. Researchers have identified a structural break in homicide numbers beginning in the last week of May. Trends for most other major crime categories have remained generally stable or moved slightly downward. What changed in late May? The anti-police protests that began across the country around May 27 appear to have resulted in a decline in policing directed at gun violence, producing perhaps unsurprisingly an increase in in shootings. This is Heather McDonald. You know, she talks about the uh, St. Louis effect. What what is the uh, Ferguson effect that when the riots happened, the police draw back, right? The police draw back. Here is what he says in the article. The sequence of events is straightforward. George Floyd's death while in police custody in Minneapolis produced demonstrations against the police in major cities from coast to coast. As a result, officers in most cities had to be redeployed from their normal duties to help manage the protests, some of which turned violent and the violence spread. This is, as I say, now they're calling it the Minneapolis effect. That's what he calls it in this article, but Heather McDonald called it the Ferguson effect because of the riots in Ferguson, spurred on by Barack Obama and this narrative that the police are somehow hunting down black people, which is just untrue, and I'll get back to that in a minute. But here's the thing, it is an attitude. It's so much of this is an attitude. Here's Trump talking about the attitude of the police on the left as opposed to his attitude. I don't know if you remember this, maybe this only happened when I was a kid. When I was a kid, they taught you the policeman is your friend. And then that that has changed and it certainly has changed in, in the black community. I'll get to Trump in just a minute. I'll get to the Trump thing in just a minute. But when the cops don't feel that they are the friends of the people in the neighborhood, it makes it much harder for them to do their job. It makes them more reluctant to do their job. And that's, it's a narrative. It is a narrative that is killing policing in the country. We have a new sponsor, MyPillow. And I'm really happy to get to talk about MyPillow. As you know, MyPillow, I don't sleep. 
I don't ever sleep, so I just want to be comfortable. So I got this MyPillow, and you hear a lot about MyPillow because of Mike Lindell, right? Mike Lindell is this guy. He was a drug addict, and yet he built this company. He's, he's very open, very openly conservative and open Trump supporter. So a lot of people attack MyPillow, and they spread bad rumors about it. So I was really interested because I didn't want to promote it if it wasn't a good thing. I was really interested to get it. So they, they sent me a pillow. I've got their uh, dream sheets on the way. I had this pillow for one night and I'm lying on it and thinking, wow, this is a great, great pillow. Now it's gone. Where is it? My wife stole my pillow. My wife stole my my pillow. She took it away. She's sleeping great, by the way. She is sleeping absolutely great. She says it's a tremendously comfortable pillow. Also, their sheets are made from the world's best cotton. They're uh, Giza. They're called Giza she- Giza Dreams, they're called. And right now, Giza Dreams sheets are at a two for one low price, plus free shipping with chrome, promo code Daily Wire. Just go to mypillow.com and click on the radio listener square to check out the two for one low price on the Giza Dreams sheets plus free shipping. There are also deep discounts on all other MyPillow products too. Enter promo code Daily Wire or call 800 651 1148 for these great radio specials. That's 800 651 1148. Eight. They have lots of great stuff. And if it's all as good as the pillow, I got to tell you, it is going to be, you're going to have a good night. So let's listen. Let us listen to Trump talking about the police and the difference between his attitude toward the police and the left. The anti-police crusade from the Democrats and the radical left and radical left Democrats also has to stop. The left wing War on cops puts our officers in danger and our communities at very grave risk. Can't do this. Biden described the police as the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're the friend. They're our friend. They're helping us. (laughs) You know, this used to be what your mom taught you. The policeman is your friend. You can go to a cop if you're in trouble. And a lot of black people feel like, no, the policeman's my enemy. That's a narrative that they get. And the kids are afraid of the cops and they're afraid to go to the cops. And what do you think that does to these communities? And you know, what's what's so hilarious about this is the wages of leftist policy. The, The left is like this all the time. They want the policy. And then when the bad stuff comes down, they don't want to be blamed for the policy. In fact, it's bad of you. It's wrong of you to blame them for the policy. In Minneapolis, remember they were defunding the police in Minneapolis? Big speeches. They pledged to defund the police. They had a meeting of the Minneapolis City Council who pledged, they pledged to defund the police. And it was supposed to be a meeting on police reform. But for much of the two-hour meeting, council members told Police Chief Madaria Arredondo that their constituents are complaining. They're seeing and hearing street racing, which sometimes results in crashes. There are brazen daylight carjackings, robberies, assaults, and shootings. And they asked Arredondo what the department is doing about it. Residents are asking, where are the police, said Jamal Osman, newly elected council member of Ward 6. I mean, all of the crime in Minneapolis is going up after they defund the police, after they threaten and pledge to defund the police. And they're saying, where are the police? It's classic leftism. It's classic leftism. They want to do the policy because the policy makes them feel good. It makes them feel virtuous. It's their ideas. They're following their ideas of virtue. And then when the policy is a disaster, instead of saying bad idea, they blame other people for blaming them. Jason Riley, he's at Manhattan Institute and he writes a column for the Wall Street Journal. He is black and he writes Tension between police, I mean, he's just telling the truth here, tension between police and low-income blacks 
results from the extremely high violent crime rates in poor black neighborhoods. Racial disparities in police shootings are driven by racial disparities in criminal behavior, not by racist cops targeting black men. Sound of truth. It's like a bell ringing, right? Talking about police department diversity is another way to avoid talking about the underlying problem of black criminal behavior. If liberals really thought that more diverse police departments were the answer, they would be they wouldn't be hounding black police chiefs out of jobs, which is what they are doing. And, you know, this is so this is starting to tell in the polls. Law and order is starting to be a uh, an issue in the polls. And Dan Henninger writes today, he says there's a Monmouth poll out this week, finds 65 percent of respondents say that maintaining law and order is a big problem. But listen to this. The polls self-identified party affiliations are 28 percent Republican, 41 percent independent and 31 percent Democratic. But here's the election's ticking time bomb among non-Republican blacks and other minorities, more than 60 percent agree that civil disorder has become a big big issue, while just 46% of white non-Republicans see it as a problem because they're living in nicer neighborhoods, all right? They're living in nicer neighborhoods, so they don't see the problem. The problem, the shootings, you can go and burn down other people's stores, but the shootings are going to take place in these neighborhoods because that's where the crime is. So the left has a theory. Before I get into this, let's let's pause for just a minute and talk about Gabby Insurance, right? I mean, you, that's what you were thinking. You were thinking, well, this is all very interesting, but what about Gabby Insurance? Uh, Gabby Insurance, you know, when you have the same car insurance or homeowner's insurance for years, you get trapped into paying your premiums and not thinking about it. It makes it really easy to overpay and not even realize it. You can stop overpaying for car and homeowner's insurance by seeing if you can get a lower rate for the exact same coverage at Gabby. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples to apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers, progressive nationwide and travelers among them. I have used the Gabby website. I went on and tested the Gabby website and it is so easy to use and you can compare your insurance to all the other different kinds of insurance and get the same exact coverage for a lower price. Always a good thing. Gabby customers save 800 $25 per year on average. If they can't find you savings like they did for others, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing you have the best rate out there. It's totally free to check your rate and there's no obligation. Take a few minutes right now and stop overpaying on your car and home insurance. Go to Gabby.com slash Clavin. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash Clavin. G-A-B-I Gabby.com slash Clavin. And I know you're thinking... Anyone can spell Gabby, but how do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. So, <laughs> so, so let's talk about the theory of the left. In fact, we have somebody, an expert on the theory of the left of what causes crime, Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris was on The View, and they asked her what she meant by defunding the police. This is cut 15. I think that a big part of this conversation really is about reimagining how we do public safety in America, which I support, which is this. 
We have confused the the idea that to achieve safety, you put more cops on the street. Instead of understanding to achieve safe and healthy communities, you put more resources into the public education system of those communities, into affordable housing, into home ownership, into access to capital for small businesses, access to health care regardless of, of how much money people have. That's how you achieve safe and healthy communities. And so we really do need to understand and reimagine what and how we can actually make and help make communities safe. I just want to point out, by the way, that every time Kamala Harris uses the word conversation, that's when she starts lying. It's a tell. It's what in poker they call a tell. You know, people have these little things they do that reveal whether they have a good hand or not. Uh, and her tell is she uses the word conversation. That's when, you, that's when she starts lying. Also, when her mouth is moving, that's the other time she starts lying. But conversation is, is her tell. All right, so she says the problem isn't police. See, this is the funny thing. This was their theory in the 60s. These were their exact same bad idea theories in the 60s. This was what led to the crime wave that made the 70s, 80s, and 90s intolerable in cities until they brought in not just more police, they brought in uh, uh, integrated police, police that look more like the neighborhood, where, so they brought in more black cops, more cops of color. They brought in Comstat, which was a way of looking at where the crime was. They brought on-site hotspot policing, so they would go and flood the, the places where the crime was with police, and they brought in uh, quality of life policing so that they didn't have broken windows policing is called so that if there were little crimes like graffiti and breaking windows, they stopped the vandalism because that helped bring down the, the general crime because it made the neighborhood look more uh, livable and, and a better place to be. So the, all of that stuff they did in the 70s and eight, in the 80s and 90s when finally Giuliani came into New York, transformed it. And this is what they now call, uh, what do they call it? They call it mass incarceration. It wasn't mass incarceration. It was arresting people for committing crime. Listen again, though, to what Kamala Harris says, where things are better and why they're better. This is cut 16. Here's the bottom line. Um, if you contrast, you know, many communities which are have a heavy presence of police to middle and upper middle class suburbs in America, you will not see that presence of police. But what you will see, you will see families who have an income that allows them to get through the end of the month. You will see good public schools. You will see people who have access to health care and can afford it. You will see people who have jobs. And so this has to be the conversation. <laughs> so so why, why is there more crime in the suburbs? Because the people have jobs, because they have families who care about the public schools. It, they have families. They have mothers and fathers. They live in a different way. It's the behaviors that create the crime. And listen, I am not blaming poor people for the problems of being poor. There are real problems in being poor. You can't just be one of these conservatives who says, oh, you know, if you just if you just get an education and get married and don't have kids out of wedlock, everything will be fine. If your mom's a crack your dad, you've never seen your dad, it's hard to do that. It is really hard to live in these neighborhoods. But you can't just go in and give people money and give people things and expect and give them housing and expect them to change their behavior. That is what the left has been doing all this time. That's why the economy crashed, because they were giving loans to people who couldn't pay them back. All of this time, you have got to, you know, here's a thought. Here's a thought. What if we had a society that promoted religious ideas that were friendly to families and good behavior. And then we had a system, a political system, in which people could build their own businesses and keep their own money and make their own decisions. We could call it Christian capitalist America. What a concept. What a concept. When the left comes up with that concept, 
I will become a leftist. All right, LifeLock. You wanted to use LifeLock to protect your identity because you need your identity. It's who you are. If they steal your identity, you're nobody. And, and not only that, they're using your identity to get stuff. The FBI Cyber Division is warning that students and families will be increasingly vulnerable to cyber attacks because of the current online learning use of teleconference applications. Since the start of the pandemic, there's been a 300% increase in cybercrime activity. Hackers are becoming more sophisticated and taking advantage of teleconference accounts through which they are information like emails and passwords. It's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives. Every day, we put our information at risk on the internet, and cybercriminals keep finding new ways to steal identities. You could miss certain identity threats by just monitoring your credit, but LifeLock can help. LifeLock detects a wide range of identity threats, like your social security number for sale on the dark web. They have notified me numerous times. It is really helpful. If they detect your information, they'll send you an alert. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but you can find out if your information is on the dark web. Get your free dark web scan at lifelock.com slash Clavin. Pick the plan that's right for you and save up to 25% off your first year with Promo code Claven. That's a free scan at lifelock.com slash Claven and 25% off with promo code Claven. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how do you spell Claven? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's in Claven. I just make it look this easy. So if you didn't hear the big news, we're moving the Daily Wire to Nashville. What? Oh, my God. That's right. <laughs> That's why right now we're practicing who knew a little Southern hospitality. We're offering 15% off select membership using Code Nashville. If we hadn't done this, I would have just shown up for work one day and everybody would have been gone. Tonight, Michael Knowles and Matt Walsh will be answering your questions about the move on All Access Live starting at 4 p.m. Pacific. So join now and be a part of this next adventure with us. That's 15% off at dailywire.com with code Nashville. Go on and subscribe. So I brought on Spencer Clavin, no relation. I, he was just wandering by outside and I dragged him in here because he has been talking about stuff on his uh, podcast, Young Heretics, which you can find at youngheretics.com. That is really telling. What Young Her- Heretics does is it basically talks about classic culture, Western culture, and it applies some of the things that we find in the classics to the world as it is today. Who are you? <laughs> you know, now that I'm here in the studio yeah. in person, I have to confess I do see a certain <laughs> resemblance, but I assure the viewers at home it's purely coincidental. That's why I've grown all this hair, this the, long the, beard. So, to, so no one can tell us apart. To conceal that. my... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Somebody told me... So I was going to say, where's my, my water? Thank have, you. Very well, my pleasure. I, I just do what I'm told, really. <laughs> so so, that's how my so, dad since when, when, when did that happen? That's <laughs> <laughs> a change. So you have been talking about something that I'm really interested in, and it really does apply to what we're talking about, sure. is, is the change in civilization where basically we hand over the right of revenge mm. to the state. And there's a great series of plays, the Oresteia, that yeah. basically talks about this. And yeah. So talk a little bit about this. See, you're gonna. I know why you like this because it's about avenging a father's murder. Exactly. Which, you expect I, me to do, I, which I expect right? you to do. I, I'm the guy who, when you hear that voice, revenge, revenge. That's, that's me. right. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Well, uh, in the end of this, you're gonna get buried under a cave. <laughs> so, so the Orsay, right? One of the great Greek. I mean, tr- truly one of the great triumphs of Greek 
tragedy. It's a trilogy of plays. People, right. you know, sometimes think it's just one play. It's actually three different plays, basically about what happens when Agamemnon of the Greek forces, the kind of Greek king, returns home to Argos to find that his wife has been sleeping with another man. Now, he's brought another woman home, too. He's brought Cassandra home. But Clytemnestor, his wife, is there. She's basically uh, ready to ambush and kill him, which she does. She duly accomplishes. And uh, she says that she's doing it because... Uh, Agamemnon had killed their daughter in order to basically she right. made a human right. sacrifice. So you have this, at the beginning of this whole thing, you have this this blood debt essentially that this this cost has been incurred and nobody's ever paid for it. And Clytemnestra says, "I'm going to make you pay for it by by killing you," which she does. She right. traps him in the house. Um, Orestes, the son of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, has been away. He comes back. He's he must now avenge his father's murder. That you have to do that. The gods have told him he has to do it, so he has to do it. He does that. Now he's a mother killer. And so you just have this cycle that goes on and on. Right. And, and this is the way people live. You know, in Afghanistan, they are still, their tribes fighting 300-year-old yeah. w- feuds that the revenge just keeps, the blood debt just keeps going back. Exactly. It's yeah. the justice of blood debt. That's the right, right word for it. And so this, the, the play is basically about what to do with that. Okay. Because you have, it's performed, remember, in Athens, which is the kind of the birthplace of, of democracy as we understand it. And and they're b- very big into kind of civil law and adjudicating things by law. They're trying to figure so, out. So how do they solve the problem? Well, right. Okay. So Orestes is pursued, driven mad by the Furies, the god, the goddesses of blood debt, essentially the goddesses of vengeance. And he uh, is told to seek help in Athens with Athena, the patron goddess of Athens, who comes and basically judges a court case. He says, we're not going to decide this by murder. We're going to decide it by vote. He's a jury decisions. The jury split. Athena decides in favor of Orestes, and she takes the Furies and basically transforms them. So the spirits of blood debt become these kind of strange worshipped goddesses under a under a ca- under a hill in a cave. And yeah. So this charts the moment in the same way that yeah. like Genesis charts the moment, the beginning of society. Yeah. This charts the moment when people say, instead of vengeance culture, yeah. we're going to turn over the power of vengeance to the law. Yes, which is like the invention of the police, basically. Exactly, and the th- right, but the thing to note about it, it's so brilliant in the in the symbolism is that that doesn't come without a cost. It produces okay. like a kind of byproduct, and the byproduct is these furies that have gotten trapped under a cave. You have to kind of revere these strange. The, the word for them is chthonic. They come from the earth. You know, these sort of dark forces under the earth, and those are the forces of revenge that have been locked away in order to make society work. So we don't just have to kill each other for generations and generations. It's amazing. This studio now contains the only two people on earth who have ever, ever used read the word. <laughs> You'll have ever used word the chronic in a sentence. You, have you used phonic? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's a great word. Great word. I mean, deep within the earth. Okay. Yeah. So, so the the point is now that the Furies have gone. They become kind of the subconscious. Yeah. Of the. And, and they come out from right. time to time. You were talking, I, I heard your show the, yesterday yeah. about um, the Bacchae. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of these furies in a way coming up, or at least this, this buried idea coming yeah. back to the surface. Yeah, it's the same forces. You know, I mean, the Greeks didn't, didn't really have an idea of the subconscious in the way that that like we have one, right. Freud, but but they, they have this idea that this these forces kind of come back and you have to somehow find a way of acknowledging that they're there without letting them destroy you. Um, the, what's amazing to me about this is it tells you everything you need to know about why people are tearing down statues right now. Huh. And this is so so people are out in the streets, or they have been for a long time now, rioting, tearing statues down. Why? To avenge the sin of racism. And you hear, I mean, Ibram X. Kendi, who's one of the great sort of like anti-racist prophets now, says said, in order to uh, make atone for the sin of racism, the sin of slavery. We need reparations. We need uh, riots in the streets. We need this great national reckoning. Um, 
They think that's something new. It's the oldest <laughs> kind of justice in the book. Once you tear the statues down, you raise the furies up out of their cave, and there's no end to it. Just you know, keeps cycling. that's a really interesting point, yeah. that, that basically these are the statues that mark the transition mm. from revenge to, to law. Yes. It's also true, too, when you think about a lot of these places where there's a lot of gang activity, mm -hmm. that gangs operate on vengeance, on blood debt culture, right. and the police are basically coming in and saying, no, you have to come in and give that power over to the police. We yeah. will solve the murders yeah. for you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everything that's supposed to be this new utopia, this never-before-seen utopia, is the oldest, you know, tribal so, concept. So we both have this philosophy that everything has a cost. And mm. what ha when you tear down these statues, you're basically saying something about the country you live in. Yes. And, That's right. and kind of hinting that you have something better, which I have never, I've never heard of something better, mm -hmm. but like, but, but what does it mean to our sense of ourselves as a nation when you start tearing down statues, attacking history, saying everything is 1619 yeah. prejudice and all this? Yeah, I mean, for a while now, the left has been doing this, and it's, it's kind of an old Marxist trick, basically, to um, infiltrate the schools and teach people that the founding history of your nation is, is evil. What we forgot, forget, we think that like we can preserve things just by telling the facts. Well, this happened, and this happened, and this happened. The left understands narrative. So they are here. The reason they're writing the 1619 Project, the reason they're doing all that stuff, is because they don't just want to tell you, and, and the, the author of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, has said this explicitly, we're not here to tell you history. We're here to take control of the story you tell about yourself. That's what it is. <laughs> Did she actually said that? Mm -hmm. She said yeah. it's a, yeah, Good it's for a, her. At least she's <laughs> an honest, terrible person. Yeah. She's a very, very honest person. If you yeah. read her Twitter, she's quite clear. She's claimed the riots as the 1619 riots. She was very <laughs> happy to have that said about her. Um, and the reason for that is that, and this is something, by the way, that Herodotus, the, the father of history, the great Greek historian, really knew. You write history not just to preserve facts, but to preserve glory and color and to tell stories. And that when you when you preserve not just not just the facts of what happened, but the, the legends people tell about them, the folklore, the way that we enshrine George Washington and these you know great Grecian statues, and, and all of our statues are these kinds of portrayals of our founders as heroes. You convey something else that is true about the founding, which is that it was noble and good and glorious. And when you tear those things down, what you're basically trying to do is make people People forget that, make people believe that it was evil, so they'll think of themselves as evil and roll over and die. Huh. Yeah, you know, you mentioned Herodotus, who is one of my favorite writers. I love Herodotus. Yeah. And but it's been so long since I've read Herodotus. <laughs> yeah. Herodotus covers what period? Oh, okay. So base, I mean, the thing that people look to him for is the Persian Wars. Right. Right. So this is the and in fact, it's kind of the opening of the classical, the high classical period, because Greeks at this point were just a bunch of tribes in these kind of rocky outcroppings forming different cities. Right. Um, and basically they pissed off the, this giant empire to the east, the Persian empire, and Darius was the great king whom they, they really angered. And so he sent this giant force to wipe them out. And they, several times, both in 490 and then in 480 BC, they sent these little tiny expeditionary forces fighting basically for the freedom of the Greeks from the Persians, and they won. That's what Herodotus is telling, telling you, the story of the origin, really, of Greece, of the, and, the greatness. And I mean, they, they made this movie 300, which, oh, yeah. which I forced you to see, I remember, when I, it came out. I've seen it five times, <laughs> what are you talking about? I love that movie. No, when you were, when you were, this is the only movie, when I was a kid, I watched a movie twice in one week, because yeah. I loved Alfred Hitchcock, and I saw, he brought out a movie. This is the only other movie I've ever watched, gone to, gone to the theater twice in one week, because I saw it without you, and then I came back, and you were still living 
living on my project. I remember this now. Yeah, yeah, you did. You said you have to see it. And, and you were right. It was a great movie. And, and the, the whole point of that movie, though, is that, I mean, when they buried the 300 Spartans who stood for, what was it, three days against uh-huh. this yeah. massive force. This was Xerxes, the king. The king. Xerxes, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. They, they, they said, you know, here, obedient to Spartans' laws, we lie. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. so it was actually, even though they died, even though they were martyred, they were mar- martyred for a sense of civic glory. Yeah, and, no, this is yeah. right. So this is we're going to talk about this on a, an episode. I haven't taped it yet, but we're going to re- yeah. do an episode of this on uh, Young Heretics. Um, you know, 300 is about Leonidas, the Spartan king, who stands down, stands against Xerxes, the, the giant encroaching force of Persia. And as you say, they, they basically sacrificed themselves to slow the Persians down. They were The Persians were advancing uh, from the north into the south to get the Greeks. And they, they, they just hurled their 300 bodies, essentially, at the Persians to stop that from happening. 300, the reason 300 is a great movie, you, you know on, on the internet you have the actually guy with the big glasses who said, well, actually, <laughs> yeah. this is true of 300. Like, many things in 300 didn't actually happen in quite the way in the sequence. You know, They compress things, they take things from other periods and put them in. That famous, this is Sparta moment where they kick <laughs> yeah. the guy into the well, happened 10 years before. But, you know, the reason that it's great and true to Herodotus is because the way that they compress things and the way that they make them larger than life, these big, burly yeah. Leonidas and his Spartans, is true to Herodotus' vision, which is to preserve the Greek word. He says he doesn't doesn't want events to become exitela, which means like faded out, like the, like a painting that fades over time. He knows that the glory of these events, what it was like to be there, is going to get lost unless he records this depiction of it. That's what three hundred is. It's it's yeah. actually carrying on Herodotus' vision in the modern. It's day. really interesting. I mean, this is why you, this is why you should listen to the Young Heretics <laughs> podcast at youngheretics.com because they're doing the best to erase this culture, which mm. reminds us of where we come from and how great we are and why we have to keep it alive. Spencer Clavin, no relation, is also the assistant editor of the Claremont Review of Books and the American Mind. The Claremont Review of Books is the only uh, magazine or whatever journal that I read literally from cover to cover. I read every single article and it is that good. And it's gotten even better now that they have Spencer Clavin as their assistant <laughs> editor. And the American Mind is also excellent. For young, it's a, a younger version of sort of the Claremont Review of Books. Go to youngheretics.com to find that podcast. Come back here to hear me again. But really, it doesn't matter because the Clavenless Weekend is upon you. There will be wailing. There will be gnashing of teeth. You will be cast out into the exterior darkness. Survivors, gather here on Monday for The Andrew Claven Show. I am Andrew Claven. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, give us a five-star review and also tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Wall Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Assistant director, Pavel Wadowski. Edited by Adam Saivitz and Danny D'Amico. Audio mixed by Robin Fenderson. Hair and makeup, or head and makeup, is by Nika Geneva. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistants, McKenna Waters and Ryan Love. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. President Trump beats Joe Biden for the first time in a major poll. Democrats get foreign policy wrong again. And more evidence of voter fraud creeps up in New Jersey. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.